Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking editor Asa Christiana. What's up, Ed? And art director Mike Pekovich. Hey, Ed. Now, as always, uh, I like to ask folks to please leave a nice five-star rating on our iTunes page or maybe even a nice positive comment and spread the word to fellow woodworkers. Let them know about this podcast. That sounds a little bossy. It is a little bossy because I am a little bossy. So they have to... They only leave five star. They could leave a four. No, you star can leave comment. a four. So we've got four stars. We're are just good. encouraging you to be a celebrator, not a hater. Absolutely, it's it's good. You're, you seem like you're down with the kids, Asa. Don't yeah, be a I'm hater. really cool with the hep talk of today. Yes. All right, all right, old man Christiana. Um, well, anyway, heading into our uh, what we generally call our segue topic um, for the day, I got an email from Brad in uh, New Zealand, all the way in New Zealand. And it turns out that Brad will be coming uh, all the way over here to attend Fine Woodworking Live in August. Cool, that's great. That's so, awesome. We get people from all around the world. Totally. So we'll, we'll get a we'll have a Kiwi this time. And uh, Brad wrote in uh, to say that while he's here in the states, he hopes to travel the country a bit in search of must see spots for furniture makers. So what would our must see list be like for? I don't know historic workshops, museums, you name he it. Said he's heading back to the other side of the planet via San Francisco, right? Right. So I, I thought we could break this up into East Coast, West Coast. Yeah, that's cool, because he's going to be out here for Fine Woodworking Live, which is in New Haven. Segway, segway, plug, plug. <laughs> Go uh, to finewoodworkinglive.com to August, register. Yep, August 8th through 11th. And uh, there's some special deals on there that we just added, so you definitely want to go there and check that out. But... Um, yeah, so if he's already out here, starting out here and within a car drive's distance of the show, before he gets on a plane and goes to the left coast, um, we thought definitely Pennsylvania would be a great stop because you could go to Wharton Asherick's house and the Nakashima well, compound yeah. all in one small area. What's, what's great there for folks who haven't gone is uh, Wharton Ashrick was, like Nakashima, was one of the first people, George Nakashima, was one of the first people to sort of, I don't know, usher in the modern era of this studio furniture maker, um, the person who was going to design it and make it um, and really try to be original with it. Um, that was pretty much of a new concept when those guys started working and that's why we consider them sort of the fathers of the modern craft. And Escherich's house is there just the way he left it with all its interesting nooks and crannies. And it's just a bizarre, amazing place. We're still trying to get Mike to go there. but I've never been. I'm not all that familiar with his work other than just what's on the Internet and stuff. I know a lot of folks know George Nakashima and even Sam Maloof because they did a good job marketing themselves, selling a lot of furniture. Wharton Eshrick, did he build just for himself? How did he get known? Was he an architect as well? Did he sell furniture? He's, he's known somewhat for his furniture. He was an artist, an architect, architect I believe. Geez, I'm going to come up short here. But what I know is that he uh, was just like an endlessly creative guy. So his house has no straight angles on it. And everything, he ended up having a fallout with his wife. I think he's one of those guys who lived up in his own head, you know, and he ended up moving out to his own little house on the same property with his son. And they lived in this sort of like ship's cabin type of a house he built with all kinds of strange contraptions and inventions. And like the, the path from the upstairs to the downstairs, the staircase is completely 
carved and fitted to the house. Wow. The house is oddball, and there's a woolly mammoth tusk that leads you down there as a handrail. Yeah, I, I have one of those at home, and um, I think you'd be imprisoned <laughs> now. If yeah. you, uh, also, like he's he was he was a sculptor definitely, and so. In the center of his house, he dug down to get below termites, I think, and he just kept digging and digging and digging like a bit of a madman wow. until he made this thing that he called a sculpture well, which goes down deep into the ground below the house into where the basement would be, but wow. much deeper. And then he built gigantic wooden sculptures that shoot all the way up through the house to the top. And it's just all these little like pivoting things, the lights, the fixtures, his the beds, the tables, it all feels fit and finished like inside a ship. And that's just the house. Wow. There's also studio buildings and a little museum. And that's just Esherick's place. And then you got, you guys know about the Nakashima residence where his, George's daughter Mira is still carrying on the family business. You guys could probably talk about that. Uh, yeah. Well, before I do, I just want to say for Wharton Esherick, you can visit um, wartoneshrickmuseum.org. It's W H A R T O N. Eshrick, E-S-H-E-R-I-C-K, museum.org. And um, its visits are available for reservation, by reservation only. Okay. So just FYI. Now, well, one cool thing on that site is he, did, he was an amazing artist and sculptor and just, you know, drawing artist. And he did these, some of the prettiest woodblock uh, print, woodblocks I've ever seen. What's that printing style? Woodblock printing? Woodblock, yes. Unbelievable. It's like when someone is an artist, everything they touch is beautiful, and he's one of those guys. And you can buy these cards or prints or transfers in all different sizes of these woodblock cool. things. It's just one small token of what this guy could do. Well, while we're on the East Coast, I would want to back it up a few decades in terms of furniture making. I would recommend going up to Massachusetts, to yeah. Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Well, wait. Let me give the— let me give the uh, Oh, we're still in Nakashima. Yeah, I, I got to give the— uh, I'm sorry, for Nakashima's place, that's in New Hope, Pennsylvania. And uh, the visiting hours are Saturdays from 1 to 4.30, no appointment required, or... Just Saturdays, 1 to 4. Correct. Or you can take guided tours there at 10 a.m. on the first Saturday during the months of April, May, June, July, August, and October. And they just ask for a $25 donation to the Peace Foundation. I um, love that they do. that's a foundation he set up, right? Yep. And I, you're you're likely to encounter either Mira, like you said, Asa, yeah. or uh, her brother Kevin. If you see a guy with a bolo necktie, he's always <laughs> got a bolo necktie on. Always. It's just cool that they're like, hey, if you come here, you're going to come on our terms. We're a working furniture studio, but that place alone, I won't. We've gone into it before on the show, so I won't go into it here. But the he designed the buildings. He filled them with all his furniture. Craftsmen are still working in the workshops. There's formal Japanese. Living areas, like really formal bath, really formal tea room, real, you know, all that sort of stuff. The whole thing is just, you want to surround yourself with beauty like that when you leave there. It's like, I can't, I've got to have, you know, brass chains on my rain gutters and stuff like that. <laughs> NakashimaWoodworker.com. So you get to see all that through this tour. You're I don't know if the, the, the wood shop itself, do you get to see they the take you through the shops. Or, yeah. um, is there a showroom I don't there? know if they take you into they the private residence. They won't take you into George's house because uh, Kevin lives there now. Okay. okay. But uh, they'll take you through all the shops and the Conoid studio and the pole barn and all that good stuff. Could you buy a piece of furniture if you oh, yeah. uh, felt oh, like yeah. it while you were there? Yeah, there's stuff all over the place that's okay. for sale. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. So that's east. And then Mike wanted to take you up the coast, possibly, to Massachusetts. Yeah, sorry, um, to Hancock Shaker Village. The Shakers lived in in uh, various little villages, uh, mainly throughout the northeast. Uh, I've been to uh, um, 
Pleasant Hill in Kentucky. Uh, but I think Hancock Shaker Village um, better than Sabbath Day, the one up near Chris Bexford. Yeah, well, I don't. Uh, I was only there one? once in the winter time, okay, but yeah. I think Hancock has the the best collection of original architecture still intact, and the furniture, and the furniture in the room. So the thing about Shaker Furniture is the the style, the design. It is so tied into the philosophy of the Shakers, which was also tied into the architecture, the way they arranged the the villages um, and just the way they lived. And for me, a lot of times the furniture I like the best, I like it because there's a driving philosophy behind the work, whether it's arts and crafts furniture, uh, shaker furniture. And to see shaker furniture in the context, in the architecture, uh, in the surroundings, in the landscape, is just a gorgeous area up there. I think it would give you a, a really significant understanding of the movement of the furniture and of the philosophy. Definitely it's, worth a trip. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I always think about Shaker Furniture that we dig on it now sometimes because of its sort of sculptural minim- minimalism. It right. sort of looks kind of beautifully modern, but that was not what they were going for. They were going for function. For, they got there by another means, which was going for pretty much pure functionality with a minimum of adornment and decoration beyond its function. And uh, so by keeping things perfectly functional, they arrived at this gorgeous minimalism in a, in a way. Right. I don't know if that's a cartoon version of it. No. But. Well, I mean, the, the cool thing about it is a lot of us think – it's like before I went there, I thought, oh, I know, I know what Shaker Furniture is. If you have a Shaker Workshops catalog, you know, with kit furniture. Oh, right. Or, you know, it's like, yes, I know it's a little candle stand or it's a little cupboard or something. But when you go there, because all these pieces are one-offs, they didn't make furniture except for chairs for commercial production. So if there's a chest of drawers, there's only one like it. And the guy or person making it just said, I'm making it for this person, for this room, for this situation. And there's a really broad, let's say, design or almost non-design palette to the furniture. See, You'll see really kind of strange and, and wacky things you wouldn't think is quintessential shaker. And I think that that's part of the whole charm of the movement. Really cool stuff. That's awesome. And uh, that would be HancockShakerVillage.org. And in August, Brad, they'll be open from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Now, for the East Coast, there's two more, two more sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is the... This is a no-brainer. Metropolitan Muse- Museum of Art in New York City, yeah. which had a recent exhibition on Rentgen furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike, you went to that, right? Yeah, that was crazy. That's the, the furniture where the drawers pull out and the hidden compartments it's and all that kind of, of stuff. It's full of hidden mechanics. Yes, but there's an American wing in the museum where they have uh, tons of furniture in glass cases that you can kind of walk around and peek underneath and uh, see a lot of pieces you may have only seen photos of. Um, and it's a it's a really good variety of furniture, um, and they do have um, entire rooms set up, decorated everything oh, from the fantastic. curtains to the uh, to the carpets to the floors to the furniture. So again, you get to see this furniture not just you know a chair in a case, which you get to see, but you also get to see the stuff in context in as well. Now, if this guy <laughs> really was a period furniture fan, I haven't been to Winter Tour, but. I've heard that it's an amazing place to visit. That's a great museum. And if you went down to the Williamsburg area, you could go to Colonial Williamsburg. They have an amazing collection of period furniture. And right you know, somewhat in the area, you could go to Monticello and Mount Vernon as well, which are obviously historical homes from U.S. Uh, 
luminaries and uh, presidents and such, and those are filled with the furniture of the day and the furniture those guys picked out, Washington and Jefferson. Yeah. So. And they can just stop by your house. Oh, my house clearly is a great place to crack a cold one. Yeah. Guided um, tour, 25 bucks. Last last <laughs> place on the list for the East Coast is a, I, is what I think is the coolest one, and that's the Yale Furniture Study, which oh, that's coincidentally, so awesome. yeah. we're going to have a group going. That's right. Unfortunately... Summer. It's sad to bring it up because the group tour is closed off now. Oh! So nice move, Ed. Well, no, but my point is, if he's at here Fine for Woodworking a few Live, more days... At Fine, the, the guy might have already signed up for it yeah, because he's coming to Fine Woodworking Live. On the day before the show, um, we opened up a special guided tour of the Yale Furniture Study, which is this sort of double secret thing a lot of people don't know about. It's where they store all their period furniture, um, but they set it up as all a... The way, well, all the way through, I found out, I didn't yeah. know this... From the 17th century all the way through to the 21st century. It's true. It's not, it's not all period, but it's, the bulk of it is period furniture. And it's set up in rows up and down these aisles and numbered to act as a furniture study for historians and students who want to go there and study it. And they'll give you a tour anytime. Ours is a little bit... You just It's by appointment only. Correct. Yeah. And yep. there's a website for that probably. Yeah. I would Google Yale Furniture Study because their URL is very long and convoluted. But okay. you can also call 203... 203- Four three two zero six three two or email yuag dot furniture study at yale dot edu. And I don't think I've ever seen in one spot, and they don't do anything to make it fancy. I, yeah. I've never seen in one spot so many priceless Goddard and Townsend and all these pieces all lined up wow. in row after row after row. I mean, it's like millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of price of stuff. I mean, it's beyond price, really. That's, wow. you can't, and it's not under cases. It's not under cases. You just don the white gloves and... No, no white gloves, but no? they make you keep your distance and you're yeah. guided by museum staff and only a few people at a time and... The security is heavy. It's a bit of a Fort Knox down there, but it's amazing. Wow. Well worth it. So now let's That's uh, in New Haven. fly over to the West Coast. Yes. So when you get over the West Coast, what should, uh, what should a person do? So there's nothing to see between the Northeast and the West Coast. I'm gonna, well, uh, no, but, no, there, there is. But I try, we tried to narrow it down East-West right. just so we don't spend 85 right. minutes on this. We're on assuming he's going to hop over the middle in a plane, but there's a ton of things to see through the middle. You could go to uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, uh, the Prairie School stuff. And, but um, we're thinking... To, Falling water, blah, 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 <laughs> blah. We're thinking that you want to go up to the Pasadena area and see the green and green stuff. And that would take you to the Gamble House, which is extraordinary. It's, it's the greatest sort of standing, preserved, green and green designed house um, filled with green and green furniture, stuff that the Green Brothers designed and had built for them. And right near there is the Huntington Library, which is really a museum and gardens in library that's filled with rooms preserved or reset up from other green and greenhouses that were moved, rooms were moved there and furniture was moved there. So that's the Huntington Library Garden and Museum. And that's Huntington.org. Mm-hmm. And the Gamble House is GambleHouse.org. And I believe the Gamble House has certain days that are open for tours um, they and run, some appointments. They run all week beginning at noon. Yeah. However, they... Um, they offer a variety of specialty tours as well as general public tours. Yeah. So they're sort of like behind the velvet rope tours from mm. time to time. You just go to the website and check it out. That was probably one of my most influential things while I was in college studying furniture making in California 
was taking a visit to the Gamble house. Uh, Gamble as in the Procter & Gamble family. Oh, yeah. um, I think originally from Cincinnati, they wanted a vacation house in Pasadena. They hired the Green Brothers as the architects. Green Brothers had been over to, I think, China and sort of picked up a lot of sort of Asian influences in their work, as well as influenced by Stickley. Um, so their work, um, and like you said, it's just the epitome of sort of home and furnishings as a single sort of masterpiece. Every place you look, every inch uh, you know, I got to stay in there for a whole entire day once in, in photograph. I used had, to live there. <laughs> he went up to me. But uh, I got to stay in there for a whole day. He had to, he had to post a million-dollar bond in order to go in this place and move light stands around. And uh, every there's, I mean, the amount of mahogany alone is ridiculous. Yes. And every single place your eye goes has been handcrafted from the light fixtures to the wall switches, the doors, the the ingle nooks around around the fireplace, every stick of furniture, and every room is slightly different. It's it's really unbelievable that this was some rich guy's vacation home. Yes, yeah, not even the main house, just the oh, second or third house, yeah. And there's one more biggie. Um, yeah, so if you travel south of Pasadena and you go inland to the Inland Empire, they call it, which is Alta Loma, Rancho, Loma. Rancho Cucamonga. Near San Bernardino. San Bernardino. I think it's in Redlands, California. Really? You're yes. talking about San Maloof? Yes. It's, yeah, I think it's Alta, Alta Loma. Loma. Alta Loma. I looked it up. All right. I've been there. And lucky, I was a lucky guy. I actually got to go there also. This sounds braggy, but... Um, Name dropper. <laughs> did, some, did you just drop something? <laughs> um, and... Uh, that you can go tour. Go ahead, just tour the well, Sam Maloof. Uh, yeah, basically. Residence. So they have the Sam Maloof Foundation for the Arts and Crafts. Um, it's housed in the family's residence, and it's open to the public. Uh, they've got a variety of exhibitions. There's a lot of different things going on. So again, I would urge people to go to MaloofFoundation.org, um, but that's a must-see on the West Coast. See, the problem with being an art director like Mike is that you mostly have to sit here and wait for the editors to bring stuff back to you. And occasionally he gets out on photo shoots, but I got to be a working staff editor for lots of years and cherry pick all these plum assignments to mix my fruit a little bit. You didn't, by any chance, uh, drive around town with Sam yeah. Maloof. Yeah, in his, in his Porsche, Porsche Boxster, Boxster. Yes, I did. Okay, just thought I visited visited some cabaret clubs. It was did amazing. You? It was amazing. I got to <laughs> shoot a whole article there, which you can look up if you look up my name and Sam Maloof's name. You'll find an article I did with him a few years before he passed away, and got to spend two days in both his old house and his new house, which are both on the property. He designed them both, filled with his furniture. So I'm in there shooting, and I'm in. Right through a doorway is Sam Maloof taking a nap in his bed. You know, he's like, do you mind if I just lay down and take a nap? You know, it was just unbelievable, really, to be in there. And he was such a open-hearted, open person. Like, there was no barrier. There was no, not even much of a filter, I think. And that probably shows in his work because it's so soulful. And he just did what made sense to him through his whole entire life. And it was a really inspiring person to meet. Right. And his old house, which is now open to the public, it sounds very much like Horton Eschrick in that it's a very handcrafted Sure. Abode. The spiral staircases and the door, every single door handle and door latch. And yeah, it's all handcrafted. And then he got, <laughs> Sam was always working an angle and he got the government to declare it a historical landmark. So therefore he 
I think that uh, well, he got the whole thing moved. Because a freeway was coming through. A freeway through. was coming through, yeah. yeah. He got the whole thing moved up to a different place, declared a historical landmark, and then money toward his new house. Nice. Which was pretty sweet. Okay. And now he's got a museum there for other artists. And they're and, still making furniture. And his guys that he trained are still there <laughs> making work. And, yeah. right. Well, let's head into our first question. That comes from Craig. And Craig wrote, Hey, guys, love the pod. My question concerns bandsaw blade width. I know that a coarse three tooth per inch blade is recommended, but what about blade width? My saw can handle up to a three quarter inch blade. Should I go with that or a half inch blade? I have a 14 inch bandsaw that I'm looking to upgrade the blade on. It'll be used strictly for resawing and ripping. Gentlemen. Well, I think he's talking about the front to back dimension on the blade. Right. Um, but there's also the question of blade thickness. As blades go up in that front to back dimension, uh, he's three quarters front to back is a Pretty good size, very big blade for a 14-inch saw. As they go up in that dimension, they also go up in thickness. Right. Um, So it's great to have a deeper blade because it has more front-to-back strength and it won't bow as much when you're resawing. Um, But the downside is you've got to get that thicker piece of metal around a 14-inch diameter wheel, and it can fatigue with some time. Also, your bandsaw might not be able to stand up to the tension a blade like that really needs. So three quarters is probably pushing, pushing it. Yeah, five eighths, one half. One half is a nice is a nice uh, compromise between uh, you know a shorter blade front to back can cut tighter curves. Right. A longer blade resaws a little better. So one half is a nice all purpose blade to keep on your saw, and it and it works perfectly on a fourteen inch saw, and it's fine for resawing. You really, if you use it, keep it sharp. Yeah. Um, and it's set up right, like we've talked about ad nauseum. Right. Uh, then um, that's plenty of depth for um, the blade. You really don't have to go higher than that, and the metal won't fatigue, and the blade will go dull long before you ever, it ever breaks or anything. The reason for the fatigue that you're talking about is because the, the, the wider three-quarter inch blade, you're going to ask it to curve around a, a smaller diameter than it should. Yeah, I think that... That it can do it, and I think most 14-inch saws will tell you in the manual that it, it can. can go up to right. three quarters. But I've heard of people having problems. Now you could try it, and it may work fine. Um, someone who's more like Raleigh Johnson, we should ask him a follow-up and see um, if it's really a problem. Problem. Yeah, I mean, when I had my 14-inch saw, I would always keep a three-eighth inch blade on it. I thought mm-hmm. that that was worked pretty well. And that was sort of back in the day when the super high tension was sort of the the flavor of the day in terms of the recommendations. Now, I think we've backed off on that. And I think a half-inch blade, you can probably tension properly without a problem on a 14-inch saw. I went to a bigger saw, and I keep a half-inch blade on there. I think you do too. Yeah, It's a good compromise between resawing and um, cutting curves. Cutting curves. It's the only saw I have. Maybe if I had two, I might put something bigger on there. But I've resawn, you know, 10, 11 inch wide, wide oak boards on that without a problem. Like you said, keep a nice sharp blade on there. It should be okay. Now that 14 inch saw that you had, Mike, that's the one that you sold to Matt Kenny that you're, that he's going to be selling to me. Is that the one? Ooh, yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. I'm just checking. And I had a really bad 14 inch saw that I sold to Steve Scott. But I gave him, a, I'm not going to say the manufacturer, but I gave him, uh, it was a, from a long time ago, but I, I gave him a really deep discount on it because I felt so bad. Okay, let's head into the next question, and that's from Jim. And Jim wrote, can you tell me why bandsaw thrust bearings are oriented 90 degrees from what makes sense? If they were oriented to turn when the blade flexed enough to come in contact with them, 
That would make more sense to me. As it is, the travel of the blade is tangential to their orientation. It seems to me they might as well be a block of wood. Thanks in advance for helping me to understand this mystery that's bothered me for decades. So we we got to kind of explain well, this Well, sort of like driving detail. a car, but with the wheels flat on the ground <laughs> yeah, exactly. instead of rolling. So this is the bearing that's behind the blade. And what it is, is it's turned sideways, so it's sort of pointing side to side. Um, against the face of the bearing. Yeah, so against the, the sort of side of the wheel, the blade runs. It's weird. I don't know why it was designed that way. I do know that some newer saws are correcting that with a bearing that rolls against the blade in the back. Um, the, the truth of it, though, is that you should not, if you have a sharp blade, which you should, and if you, it, then you should not have to push too hard. If you have a blade that's getting dull and you push really hard, you're going to have a bunch of problems. One is the blade's going to rub really hard against that thrust bearing. You're when you set up your saw, you're supposed to have a little, you know, three sixteenths or whatever gap between the thrust bearing and the blade. So it can flex backward within reason, but eventually it hits that thrust bearing. It should not be slamming against that thrust bearing. That tells you something is wrong, that you have a dull blade or you're pushing too hard. You shouldn't have to white knuckle it. The blade will cut. Or your gullets are packing up with sawdust. Yeah, or the blade is too right. fine yeah. and, and it can't clear the sawdust yeah. and so therefore it won't cut. And then you push hard. This is a lot of the reason, which we've gone over again and again, for all this blade drift people talk about. Um, so you're, in, you're into problems if you're jamming hard in, against the thrust bearing. You can even see thrust bearings with deep grooves in them where they've just gotten uh, slammed into so long. It just wore a groove in them. So instead of spinning around like they should. Um, but it is a bizarre design. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's been remedied by most or a lot of new models. They've sort of moved away from that design a little bit. What's on your saw? Do you know what you have? Yeah, I've got there? the uh, – it's a, the thrust bearing, but it's on the edge, so it rolls as the blade contacts right. that. Yep. Right, right, right. I think that's what mine has to Right. And on the old Delta, you know, it had that, that same sideways-mounted bearing. And on mine, there's no score marks or anything. I didn't really beat it up. I would always set it to where that thrust bearing just – contacted the back of the blade so it would sort of skip a little bit and spin not in use and usually once you started cutting it would contact it but okay, let uh, me let me just write that down mike for when i get the saw from matt <laughs> thrust bearing, not too much. yeah okay. that's true so you know if it's seriously screwed up that it's matt's fault is what that's Ed's right saying. yes, yes. yes. I'm, I'm pushing matt hard on this mike smell. subtly was letting everybody know that i didn't screw it up um well you know what i, I should mention since we had two uh bandsaw-related questions in a row, there's a good video that we have on the site that you were in, Asa, called How to Change a Bandsaw Blade, and it goes into all this 3TPI stuff, how to set up your blade correctly, and I'll link to that in the blog post for this episode, which is uh, 35, I believe. Um, Awesome. So, uh, moving on, uh, we're heading into our first segment of the week, and that's going to be all-time favorite technique of all time for this week, where we wax poetic about our favorite most cherished woodworking techniques. I need to come up with a new, a new line. A new catchphrase for, for that? Yeah, I, keep, I always try to change it up. It makes the catchphrase worse when you point out that it's lame well, it's, right uh, while you're doing it. Thanks. It doesn't help things. Thanks. All right. Maybe next time you just want to invent the new one and just roll it out instead of pooping on the old one. Yeah, maybe. But anyway, it's so hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to start with you, Mike. All right. What do you got? 
Uh, well, I don't know. I guess this is a technique. I guess it's my Stick favorite Stick to your technique. story, Mike. Okay, I will. Mike's really um, old, and he just put on his uh, close, what do you call those kind of glasses? Uh, quad focals. Are you kidding? <laughs> his, not, uh, what? He put on those sort of reading glasses that you that you get at the drugstore. Yeah. His look pretty good. It keeps him up on top of it's his head. It's kind of a tortoise shell I, thing. But I always love to just point out that he's very old when he puts them on. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, my technique of the week um, is uh, story sticks. Now, um, usually when I would work, I work at a pretty fast clip. I wouldn't quite say in a rush, but it often sometimes feels that way. Um, a lot of times when I, I'm working on pieces, it's sort of a design and build as I go to a certain extent. Um, I like to think of it as, as a ballet of sorts in the wood shop, and which is I'd like fine. to see that, Mike. It, it's very enjoyable. I have some nice tights that I wear in the shop. But, I'd rather uh, not see that, Mike. Fair enough. It's a, it's a bald guy with bifocals doing ballet. Okay. <laughs> um, the problem is, is a lot of the techniques, a lot of the joinery dimensions that go into a piece are sort of stored in the short-term memory portion of my brain. So by the time a piece is done, I really couldn't tell you how to make that. Right. I'd almost have to refigure that thing out again the next time I make it, which is fine because most of the stuff I make is one-off. It's part of being in a rush. You don't want to slow down to record anything. Exactly. Uh, living in the moment. Yep. Uh, living in the moment. So um, what, when I teach, especially uh, when I'm teaching a class on a furniture project, um, there's a big emphasis on prep and coming up with plans and full-size measured plans. And to take it a step further, rather than having everybody in the class with their tape measures marking out joinery, hopefully in the similar locations on all the parts, um, I basically prepare story sticks for each individual piece in a piece of furniture, and I actually lay out the joinery on each piece as well. And, of course, it works well in the classroom, but... um, in terms of having this as a device, as a furniture maker in my shop, uh, it really is a nice way to record uh, the process of building a piece. So not only um, does it help me out in a class, it also helps me out in the future if I ever want to make the piece. And the interesting thing, the thing I wasn't really expecting about it, and I guess it's why my, it's my favorite technique, is that it really kind of slowed me down a little bit in the shop made me think about it. It made me more deliberate, a little bit more measured, and I'd have to say a little bit more precise in my work. And uh, so it just sort of changed the vibe and the flow, kind of slowed me down. And now I've got all these really nice, beautifully made in dimension story sticks that record uh, the vital dimensions and components that go into a nice piece of furniture. So That's cool. Now, if you wanted to... I know that pros do this all the time because... They often do repeat a lot of their pieces. They'll right. get other commissions for the same piece. That's to their advantage because they've done what you've done, which is pause, make story sticks, make records of everything, make better drawings, do all that sort of stuff. And then if you, Mike Bekovich, have to uh, make, if you ever want to make that piece again for a family or a friend or a client, and Mike does do some commissions. Yeah. Um, you really would be quicker, yeah, much quicker. Right Here's one thing, though, the, the possible downside to the story sticks. I was basically, I had made this piece before, so I was basically making a duplicate of it, this time measuring everything. And when I dry fit the, the base of this table that I'm making, I looked at it and I said, this thing is too wide. You know, I was expecting to dry fit it, look at it and say, oh, that's great. And I dry fit it, looked at it and said, oh, something's there. So after even after I made all these beautifully dimensioned story sticks, 
I still ended up cutting five inches off the long stretchers of the piece, <laughs> but and then I cut off my story sticks and relayed that out too. So yeah, so you could fix them, and, and you got this this particular time you got to make new story sticks, yeah. but but the point still stands. Yeah, right? the downside is oh, you know, don't let the design get too precious and uh, don't and, get locked in yeah, because of those dumb sticks, right? Right, <laughs> that we love. That's it. Maybe it's not that great of a technique. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's awesome. I used them when I was doing. They're most traditionally used for cabinetry. Sure. And I use. You go into a space with a stick where you're going to do kitchen cabinets or built-ins or whatever. And there's a way to take your vertical and horizontal dimensions and put them all on a stick and carry them out to your shop. It gets you off the tape measure, right. which is just prone. You know, perfect for human error. Right. So lines on a stick it's the same reason why you hold actual pieces up to your cabinet and measure off the cabinet and make tick marks rather than uh using a tape measure right well i actually have one this week surprise surprise i'm actually back in the shop again that's and, nice uh, you're usually a wall and uh this one is uh another shameless plug for the not so big workbench and uh that is um well i'm getting ready to build uh built-in dressers in my closet uh, at my house, and uh, I think I'm going to do all the cabinet cases using splined mitered joinery, which is like bomb-proof, uh, and I learned from Lon Schleining, who probably learned it from someone else before him. So the idea here is you cut all your um, miters on the end of each case side, and then you cut a spline groove, which is a kerf cut, right? And you basically can keep the blade right at the same angle and just do a different table saw setup. Yep. Lower the blade a little bit. Lower the blade. And cut the little slot right into the face of the miter you just cut. Yep. And Bingo. then you use a, I used a, a quarter sawn oak uh, eighth inch thick spline just because I figured quarter sawn oak's not going to expand or contract much at all. And um, and then the, the key is you don't want to make one long spline and then tap it down because it, it'll, it'll bind with the glue as you you know, keep well, you're in. not putting the splines in before you wrap it all up with tape, are you? Oh, that's right. Tell them about the tape that's process. That's a good point. Could so, you even do that? I mean, I guess... Hmm. It would be tricky. Would be you do, like, opposite corner thing, then... I don't yeah, think you'd but, want to do that. But you couldn't wrap it. What? Well, let's tell them first so about the, the wrapping. The way you put this thing together is the way that Doug Stowe builds boxes a lot of the time. He, you lay the four case sides um, inside, face down. Miter I'm down. sorry. Miter, yeah, yeah, miter, miter down. face down. Yeah. And then you take like clear packing tape usually and you tape each joint. You butt the joints up to each other and you tape them. And then you flip it all over and then you roll. You put glue on the miters and then roll the box together, tape that last seam, and now you have a box. Yeah, and it really holds beautifully, but you add a little bit of – you've got those miter slots right. now. So let's say your boxes are like two, Sorry, f- those splines two are. feet deep. Okay, so I usually will cut in that case like, you know, a couple of like 11-inch splines, something like that. And then uh, you put a little bit of glue on the end and then tap in all the splines on one end of the box and flip the box over and tap in the other half of the spline from the other side. The the problem being if you make one long spline and put glue on the end of it and try to tap that all the way down, it's going to bind up with all that glue and swell up and you're never going to get the whole spline in. So what Mike was asking, Mike, you were asking, what we're wondering – could you? Would they still fold up if you put the splines in them ahead you, of time? And I, I doubt so. they w- the splines would turn that corner because right. it's as it, it's, it's a, a little acute, bit of an yeah. arc as they come right. together, and and a spline is flat. Yeah. So now you're not doing this to intentionally wrap grain all the way around four sides of this, like you do on a box. I see your point exactly, and no, you're not. You're actually not going to see the sides okay. of the piece. I did it just because I've noticed that it that that joint is absurdly solid 
and I overbuild. I well, tend to overbuild. Yeah, I'm asking on behalf of any professional cabinet maker who might be listening to this podcast, thinking this guy is crazy. <laughs> well, it is a little crazy. Yes, it's plain mitered for all my plywood casework. That's going to be hidden by a face frame and painted. Exactly. It's going to be hidden. You're never going to see it. You could do biscuits and screws and glue, which is fine. Uh-huh. But I just, I overbuild. And it's, it's true, though, that with you can do this with solid wood. You can do this with plywood. Um, it's, you know, not an Ed situation. But if, you're, if the whole box is going to be shown, it is a beautiful way to tell Mike's exact point in a non-sarcastic way. <laughs> it's uh, more practical and constructive and not tear, rip Ed a new one. Well, I tend to dovetail my drywall. So, <laughs> you know. you? Out around the corners, the outside corners. Yes. Yeah. It's a beautiful way to wrap grain seamlessly around the whole outside yes. of a piece. But I think the main reason you're doing it and love it, Ed, is not just that it's sturdy, but also because it's just so easy and clamp-free and amazing yeah. and fast. fast. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, I just cool. feel bad now about my biscuits and screws when I bang together my cabinetry. Yeah, that's amateur hour. Yeah, that's yeah. that's something that most people don't know, that all of Mike's cabinetry, it's actually not dovetailed. Those are veneers that are cut to look <laughs> like intricately fit It's marketry. It's, it's actually all marketry. Mirrors, smoke and mirrors, baby. <laughs> so my favorite thing is going to sound mundane, but it's actually magic, and it's sharpening, and it's not so much the doing. It's the feeling that... It's the sort of anticipation for how well my hand tools are going to work after I get done. So a couple things, I, I've just been, I just did a batch of it. One thing is I do it in batches because once you get all the tools out, um, it's kind of nice to, you've got your water stones open, you know, everything's good, you're ready to go. Your hands are dirty. Your hands are going to get dirty yeah. a little bit. And uh, so, and, and also... I don't really mind the sharpening either. It's like, like I said, I do it in a big batch. I, I have my Mark II Veritas honing gauge, yep. the coning guide, the greatest one. And that works every time. Do you get the little cambered wheel on that or just a No, flat I get guy? the flat one, but. I got both. You do? Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah. I just, I like to keep it simple. <laughs> and to what Mike's getting at is do I, you know, some people on their smoothing planes they'll actually take a little bit more off each side of the iron right. so the edge, the corners don't dig in and there's a special rolling uh, or sort of oval-shaped roller that you can get ovoid. for that to make that ovoid roller. It's like a rolling pin, the rolling pins that are yeah, tapered. Yeah, but um, I actually just bear down a little bit at the tips and that of the tool of the blade and that actually takes off the thousandth or so right. that I need to do. I don't really feel like I need that, but... Um, but great point there, uh, Mike. But um, uh, I love the fact with the honing guide that it always is consistent. It comes out perfectly every time. Whether I've been practicing or not practicing, it's not like freehand sharpening where you ha- there's a, some practice and some method to right. it. Um, it works every time. And so I do it in a big batch. Right before I sharpen, I'm struggling with my hand tools. Yeah. It, that's what drives me to the sharpening station. It's like nothing's working right. And... Um, Mike's got to move closer to the microphone. Uh, and n- nothing's working right, and I'm starting to struggle. Like you find that you're getting a lot of tear out or you have to uh, – you can't – the tools just aren't working right. They won't travel. You start – they start skipping across the wood. Right. Um, or you have to take a deeper cut than you want to to get the blade to bite. Right. And so I had a whole bunch of – I was fitting drawers, so I probably had two different block planes, one rough, one fine, two smoothing planes – one rough, 
one for roughing a lot of stock, one for the last few passes. Um, but I'm sounding pretty precious here. You're getting and, that collection. I know. Going. And then I had I a like rabbiting that. block plane, which is I used to to um, cut to trim the bottom of the drawer side, drawer front. So right. you get that, that little, little gap under there too. Uh, and so all five of those I was using at once, maybe a couple of chisels too, and just took them all apart, struggling, sharpen all of them, got the CD playing, get through it, 20, 25 minutes, and then you're gonna, it's all going to be magic after that. You're going to get hours more of planing right. um, with everything working beautifully all you know five little magic wands that are all going to do exactly what they're supposed to do and then it's a joy to right. do your hand tool woodworking so yeah sharpening tend to sharpen each tool as it needs to be sharpened but sometimes you do that massive reset and you just and then you feel like you have an entire arsenal of sharp tools and you're not guessing which plane is sharp which isn't that's right it's a Good investment. And I like it's a bit of a ritual. And then I put the camellia oil on the yes. blades before I put them back together. It's a it's a kind of a you wear a toga when you sharpen rust from preventer. What I, hear. I do put on a toga. Um, what's yeah? What's the Japanese? It would be more the Japanese. Kimono. Ah, I put a kimono on, yeah, not a toga, because I like to keep it in Japan. Oh, nice, yeah. nice, keeping it real. The stressful yeah. thing for me in that process is. I think you like you grind at about twenty five degrees or so, and then yeah. you hone at thirty degrees. So you have this micro bevel. It stays pretty skinny for a while, but every time you sharpen, it gets wider and yeah, wider. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring that up. It's like where is that? Yeah, how wide is it before That's you? That's the other thing it? you dread is eventually that secondary bevel gets wide enough that you don't really want to be honing that on the fine stones anymore and you really need to get a fresh grind. Yes, and that's a second ritual (laughs) to be to be. avoided yes. until but that's the same thing i'll kind of try to do as many as i can in a batch there exactly yeah. you you sharpen as many as you can without having to grind then once you commit to grinding next thing you know you're grinding four or five uh, yeah. blades yeah. exactly it raises a, an interesting point and that is that if you if i think when the, the person who dreads sharpening uh chances are they're not sharpening correctly that's true it shouldn't take a long time it does get a lot faster as you go along um, and once you get it down, so um, you every, get your process. Yeah, and everybody, basically, you need to go. Here's the tip I always give out, and I think Mike agrees. It's go to eight thousand grit. Yeah, everything else is a compromise. Um, yeah, and uh, your tools will ju- just work wonderfully. And beyond that, I don't know. People, there's proponents of going beyond that, but I don't. But some do. Well, this, let's move on. Yeah, this week I'm only going to do one more question because then I want to move into part two of Michael Fortune's interview. Oh, that's from right. The Second last half. Yep. So uh, the last question of the day comes from Tom, and Tom wrote, I've recently discovered just how beneficial labeling components for furniture projects is for color and grain matching, assembly, etc. But so far, I've used a lead pencil for marking on porous woods like oak and found that removing the marks later on is a bit problematic. Any suggestions? Mike? Well, I work with white oak quite a bit, and I do mark my parts with pencil. So I guess my first tip would be maybe don't go quite so heavy with the pencil. Yeah, that's a really good point. It just takes light marks only. Yeah, if you do go deep and it does get into the pores, it is sort of tough to get out of there. You might be able to blow it out with compressed air. Maybe, if it's in there. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if there's any sort of... uh, What about chalk? To get rid of the pencil? Oh, to mark with chalk? What about marking with white chalk? 
I don't know. I, I haven't used it. It seems like that's going to get in the pores just like But you could blow else. chalk out. Couldn't I think you? there was something know. like acetone or some solvent. Get, to could. get it out of there. But the main point is, is go lightly and then – but I – but I, you know, I thought right away, like, how is this guy marking? Does he right. have marks all over the place? Mike just did a really great article that you guys are about to see in the very next issue of the magazine. Kind of tentatively, working title is The Power of the Pyramid. Yeah, I, I mark out like a lot of folks do, just with a cabinet maker's triangle. Just a big pencil triangle typically goes across multiple parts, and it tells you the orientation of those parts. Um, the most common way to use it is uh, marking parts for a tabletop. Got some boards together, big triangle. You know which order they're in, which is top, which is going forward, which edges mate in order to joint those properly. Well, I use that triangle on basically every single component of anything I build. So like on a face frame, the tip, you, you get your face frame all lined up the way you want Let's say your top rail is a little skinny, your bottom one's a little thicker, whatever it is, you get the grain the way you want it and get all the boards lined up. And then you put the point of the triangle up on the top piece. Facing up, right. The base of the triangle down on the bottom piece and then little side tips of the triangle out on the side pieces. Right. And then you know which face is up and you know what the orientation of everything is. It's an amazing tool. Yes. Um, and you can do that with cabinet a drawer box. I just did Case that. Parts, I just did that for drawers, all my drawer boxes. Drawers, yes. On the edge grain on top, I just put those little triangles. Yes. So the the power of the pyramid. I yes. noticed. I noticed the the uh, <clears throat> the text for that article on your desk earlier had a byline of Madoff. I don't know if that was Bernie Madoff did write that for right. us. Yeah, that yeah, right. was the byline. Nice. Yeah, nice. Yeah. All right. Um, just to bring up a painful I'm a terrible topic. comedian. Um, so let's uh, head into our second and last segment of the day, and this is part two. Wasn't it ironic, What's though, that, that the guy that made off with everybody's money was called Madoff? Madoff. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, this is going to be part two of the Michael C. Fortune interview that Matt captured a, a few weeks ago. Uh, so I'm just going to hand it off. Here is our very own Michael C. Fortune. Well, we, we should probably move on to a different topic. But you, uh, I mean, you just mentioned how your, one of your missions is to get more people to use the bandsaw yeah. and rely less on the table saw. And I know that you teach a lot. Yeah. Uh, you teach a lot at like Mark Adams School yeah. and other, in Canada and yeah. elsewhere. So, having seen a lot of hobbyists in the last decade or two that you've been teaching, what are, what are some things that you think hobbyists really need to know about woodworking that you often find they don't know? Uh, it's um, what I observe is a uh, lack of confidence. Um, you know, you, if you own a table saw, you're looking at buying a table saw, joiner, planer, and so on. Um, those are very intimidating uh, pieces of uh, equipment. Um, and part of my job, and I absolutely love teaching basic uh, woodworking classes, is to um, uh, help people understand how to uh, how to work safely. Um, and then uh, these basic uh, uh, procedures. But the other thing that I find really interesting is, um, uh, you know, getting, helping really students understand the potential for this. Um, uh, you know, I, I see the whole issue of um, uh, hobbyist in a wood workshop as, uh, you know, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to uh, problem solve. Um, you're, you're looking at working from plans, perhaps, or you're looking at um, designing a piece uh, and then building it yourself. 
and then just helping them sort out, you know, sort of the, uh, any of the information that they might need to help them uh, complete that, uh, that task. Right. So um, I know I had a question, but it just evaporated mm-hmm. from my mind. In the meantime, why don't you explain to people what pea meal is? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I had a, quite a follow-up question. But I literally, but well, so let me let me ask you this then: uh, How many gallons, or excuse me, liters of poutine have you eaten in your life? <laughs> <laughs> I've yet to eat poutine on any of my trips up here. I don't think I ever will. Um, oh, speak to Mark Schofield. Was it uh, Schofield that had the uh, bad poutine experience? Uh, I believe so. I Which s- for everybody, like all the rest of the Canadians, was a a magnificent uh, poutine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe we should explain what poutine is. It's, oh, uh, I don't think we want to gross oh, anybody okay. out. <laughs> poutine is French fries. Yeah, uh, cheese curd. Uh, well, it's uh, nicely overcooked French fries. All right, and they have to be from fresh potatoes, by the way. Mm-hmm. They can't be frozen. And then um, uh, cheese curds are uh, drizzled over top of the French fries. And then over top of that, either uh, beef or chicken, really, really hot beef or chicken gravy, and which melts the poutine. And so you end up with a essentially kind of like a stew <laughs> of French fries, uh, cheese, and uh, gravy. Yeah. And it's uh, you can call it poutine or coronary in a cup. Yes. Yeah, one yeah, or the other. Yeah. That sounds absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Uh, well, down in the south, there's something. Uh, I guess I work with this guy, Greg Palini, a lot. And yeah. he loves to eat cheesy bacon fries, which are just equally as gross to me. Uh, you know. That sounds delicious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I remember what the question is now because you talked a little bit about one of the things is, is, is trying to show students the potential for yeah. woodworking and yeah. problem solving. Yeah. And when you were talking earlier about you got started in more an industrial or commercial design of yeah. furniture. Yeah. With and, very little instruction, by the way, in the how-to uh, of, uh, of furniture making. Right. So, when, so now you make – you don't design furniture for mass production. No. So how is it different designing – is there any difference in designing furniture for mass construction versus individual construction of pieces or maybe 10 chairs at a time or something like that? But is there any difference in designing? Uh, for me, no. Um, I often apply the training I've had in uh, uh, production design to um, uh, what I'm doing, uh, even if it's a one-of-a-kind uh, piece. Um, uh, I really like to work in a, um, oh, sort of a very regulated, uh, manner. Um, the other, uh, issue is that even if I'm doing a one-off piece, just my design process is that, um, I may be doing that piece, but as I'm, uh, building that, uh, table or chair or whatever it is, uh, there might be other designs that will come from that, mm-hmm. um, so that I can maybe reuse those table legs. Uh, or reuse some sort of uh, some other shape, and so I'll create a jig to fabricate that um, uh, shape that I can reuse in uh, reuse in other pieces. So I'm constantly thinking about uh, the most efficient way of uh, doing whatever whatever it is. And I also want to point out I have absolutely no biases that way. 
um, you know, if, uh, working by hand uh, is the best way, the most efficient way, then that's exactly the way I'm going to uh, I'm going to do it. Yeah. So I don't shy away from uh, pretty much uh, pretty much anything. The other thing, just you know, in terms of uh, students and so on, um, this as a pursuit is is never ending. Um, you can I don't believe you could ever get bored. Uh, there's just so many different uh, areas that you uh, you can explore. I've been doing this for um, plus or minus 40 years, and you know there's just an incredible range of things that um, you know I can I can explore. Yeah, there's um, always something to learn. There's always something yeah. to learn. A new technique. Yeah. Now I you also I th- I think I've learned over the over the years of working with you that you really believe in designing first. Yeah. And nailing the design and then figuring out how something's going to get made. Yeah. Yeah. And that for me is part of the, uh, part of the excitement. Mm-hmm. I've got a very specific design sequence that, uh, that I go through. Uh, and I'm often working well, often I'm virtually always doing uh, work, uh, by commission. Um, uh, I'm preparing designs usually in sketch form, showing them to the, uh, to the client um uh when i'm sitting at my sketchbook uh what i'm looking for uh is an idea that uh, is going to solve the problem that the client is uh presented um i tend not to um uh, accept a lot of influence from the client that's uh, essentially my job they may be really good at what they do but um, you know they may not know much about furniture design and construction and that's why they've uh, why they've come essentially to me right. so I develop what I think is um, appropriate solutions and I'll only uh, show the client two uh, two ideas um, when I'm sitting at my sketchbook um yeah, I'm looking for the solution, but I'm also looking for something that I would like to make and that I'm going to uh, I'm going to learn from. Yeah, um, and even if you don't, uh, for a lot of our listeners and readers, wouldn't be making furniture on commission. But this is also how you can handle your spouse. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Only yeah. show two options yeah. and yeah. make sure there's something you want to build. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, to do it otherwise, I just wouldn't have the uh, same enthusiasm. Right. If I know what I'm building is flawed in some uh, fundamental way, I just just don't want to go there mm-hmm. uh, is what it amounts to. So I'll show those uh, sketches, you know, in some cases you're going to show them to your spouse or uh, you're going to show them to a uh, show them to a client. Right. Uh, and at that point, the client approves the design. Then I look at how I'm actually going to make it. Um, I really don't want to uh, limit where I want to go by what I know, because I I'm also aware that uh, you know what we're doing is um, has a huge history uh, to it, and it's a lot of it's well documented. So uh, you know, if you don't know how to do it, chances are um, there's going to be a book, a magazine, a video, or something. That might not be exactly what you're after, but it will give you a clue on how to solve that uh, solve that problem. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely true. Um, <clears throat> I guess we have a, probably a few more minutes left, and there are some maybe some other topics we get into. Yeah. I know one thing uh, I've noticed is you you have seem to have an affinity for buying old machines, maybe and rehabbing them. You have some interesting machines in your shop, yeah. like the uh, veneer slicer. 
We have a big veneer guillotine, yeah, um, and it goes back to the 1930s. Uh, right. I bought it for next to nothing. It was in a uh, actually in a hockey stick manufacturing uh, company, and they hadn't used it in ten years. Yeah, but uh, in any case, uh, just very you know quickly, um, you know, we'll do dining tables and so on. And for years and years and years, um, I would uh, you know sort of cut and splice veneer and so on you know a dining table may might take me four or five hours to mm-hmm. uh, lay the uh, lay the pattern out with this uh guillotine it now takes four minutes it has a like an eight foot long blade on it well, is that right it's, uh it's actually short uh, uh it's uh 82 I 82 think, inches so just under seven feet yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and we're on, you know, I'm just working on a dining table now that's, uh, bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, you know, cutting wood, uh, cutting my uh, veneer to size and so on with a block of wood with a, uh, double-edged razor blade embedded in, in it that this Italian technician showed me how to, uh, uh, how to make. Right. And, you know, if, if what I'm working on is outside the size of my guillotine, that's the way I'm doing it. Yeah. And it works just, uh, just it as works well. perfectly is mm-hmm. what it amounts to. I've yet to see another method of uh, cutting veneer that works as well as that yeah. uh, shop-made tool. Yeah, it's a, basically you're using a straight edge. And then what yeah. rides against the straight edge, There's a, it's a block of wood yeah. shaped a little bit. A little bit, make it comfortable to hold. Yeah. And embedded in the piece of wood is yeah. a... Uh, is a uh, Razor blade yeah. angled, so just a tip of it, a corner. The heel. The heel uh, corner, yeah. 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 And that's what and cuts it, the veneer. It's a, uh, you know, one of those 1940 double-edged razor blades, yep. and you can still get them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's that's what we use, and I used right up to the point that we uh, I found this old guillotine. We yeah. also have a monster slot mortise machine. That, yes. Um, you know, if my shop was to burn down... Uh, that is the one piece I couldn't replace. And mm-hmm. it's um, what I understand. It was used during the Second World War to rout out the trigger mechanism in uh, gun stocks. Yeah, oh, interesting. And, uh, it's a, a truly fab- fabulous machine made by uh, Onsrud in uh, Illinois, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, I was at a uh, veneer, a, a wholesale veneer company in yeah. Kentucky, and they had like a 16-foot guillotine. Yeah, uh, it was huge. Yeah, it was massive. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, and you and uh, you have some other cool machinery. You probably won't yeah. bore people. I, I, you know, I like old machines. But um, let's see what else. Uh, well, I have to perhaps bring up something slightly embarrassing for you. Uh, many readers are familiar with Scott Linus's book, The Workbench Book. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah. And you're yeah. in that. You have a whole chapter in that. Yeah, I do. For your yeah. workbench. That workbench, the one that's from the book, is still here in your shop, right? Yeah, is. Yeah, is yeah. it the one you use regularly, or is it the one that Scott uses? Uh, I think it might be the one Scott is using, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the one I'm using is uh, exactly the same. I've yeah. actually got all the, still got all the jigs to uh, fabricate those uh, workbenches. Yeah. It takes me about three days to uh, make one of those. But mm-hmm. uh, one of my... I don't know, kind of delights is the fact that uh, that workbench is beginning to look like workbenches that you see in, um, you know, old-time museums. The uh, uh, dogs are all rounded. Yeah. The corners are rounded off um, just through use. Right. And that's one of the the joys for me um, is standing at my 
workbench day mm-hmm. in and day out uh, using that um, uh, bench to hold whatever project I'm, uh, I'm working on. Now, you know, there's some adaptations. I mean, it is an older style workbench, but, you know, we do have a, a big pattern maker's vice on it and right. so on because that's, you know, what I need to um, hold the curved and funky shapes that I'm often uh, often working yeah. with. Of course, what's what's embarrassing about that is not the fact that your binge is in the book, of yeah. course, but the photographs are... Oh, yeah. 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 I, yeah. Everyone's embarrassed by how they looked 20 years ago, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, the big bushy head of uh, uh, dark hair and a big bushy beard yes. and all that sort of stuff. Yes. But, uh, if I recall correctly, there might have been some Velcro strap shoes involved as well, <laughs> which were you know definitely a sign of the times. Um, Great yeah. fun. Yes. Uh, yeah, I shudder to think that because I know I, I've had photographs of myself also yeah. in the magazine and, yeah. you know, 15, 20 years from now. There's also one of the first articles I wrote for, uh, the first article I wrote for Fine Woodworking was on uh, steam bending uh, the parts for a number one chair. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I teach that topic all over the place. And the number of times that people have come up with photocopies or a magazine and uh, fine woodworking and have uh, opened it and said, oh, well, here's somebody writing about steam bending. Right. And I'm looking at them going, they're putting me on. Right. And they're just not making the connection between yes. the photographs of the person. And you. <laughs> and yeah. me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I kind of have to say, um, you know, that guy kind of looks familiar. And right. then there's this, you know, sort of look of wonderment on their face. <laughs> oh, my God. It's you. It's like, did you not notice the name was the same? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you're, you always go by Michael C. Fortune in the magazine. And yeah. I've, I've, I do not know, but I'm, I have my suspicions about what the C might stand for. Are you willing to tell us today? Uh, sure. Yeah, it's uh, uh, Christopher. Oh, yeah. I thought yeah. it might be Christopher, yeah. but I had some yeah. more more creative ideas yeah. as well. Yeah, you know, I try and sort of pass off Cornelius from time to time. Cornelius. But, uh, yeah, people see through that, I guess. Yeah, you could down yeah. in the states, you could definitely tell people it stands for Canadian bacon. <laughs> that that was your nickname in high school. You know, everybody yeah. called me Canadian yeah. bacon. Well. Um, that's probably about as much time as we have today. Uh, it's been about a half hour. Um, anyways, for those of you, uh, who like Michael's articles and have enjoyed this talk, you can come to Fine Woodworking Live this year and see Michael. What are you teaching at Fine Woodworking Live this year? Uh, I'll be doing a class on the, uh, the bandsaw, of course. I'll be doing a uh, class on uh, my design sequence, mm-hmm. um, which uh, is, I firmly believe that anyone um, can learn how to design, and specifically, in this case, design, uh, design furniture. There's a very, seri- a very clear, pragmatic series of steps that uh, you can follow that will make you creative whether you want to be or not. (laughs) (laughs) And it essentially encourages you to uh, look at um, creating a volume of uh, shapes and forms and then uh, choosing where you want to go from that volume of uh, of sketches or models. Would Uh, this technique help me to design a liquor bar that is shaped like a giant football? Uh, it could, uh, and you could morph that into uh, a basketball or any other. You could 
uh, morph yeah. that idea into a hockey stick. It's just an inside joke for yeah. me. I have a photograph of a giant liquor bar shaped like a football oh, well, that opens yeah. up. I'm sure that came from somebody's design sequence. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, also, you're, I know that at some point down the road in the yeah. near future that you're going to have an article on your design sequence in the magazine. Oh, I'll be doing that. I'll yeah, that. that's somewhere. Yeah. I'm not sure when that's going to happen. I don't want to get people's hopes an, up, but it's email about that this week, and it looks like it's scheduled for oh, no, 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 the no, end of this no, month. No, don't tell anybody. Oh, to come up and shoot the photographs. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. That means it's further along than so. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. That, so that'll be good. But also, if I'm working live, you can't beat having it in, in real in real life. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it was there last year. Really, uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, you know, you get a chance to um, meet people that you might be corresponding with by uh, by email. I do um, from time to time, from time to time, uh, um, answer questions um, that people will uh, will send in, and then they introduce themselves. Yeah. So that so that's always great. Fun. We should point out Michael loves emails and phone calls, <laughs> and we'll be posting both his home phone number and his email address. Mm, maybe not. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, yeah, um, but you are actually really generous with people. I know that you do email directly with many of the readers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I think it's such a great, uh, fabulous pursuit, um, Mm -hmm. both as a hobby as well as a a career choice. Uh, I've been doing this now for 40-some-odd years, and um, uh, I truly think it's been a spectacular uh, career. Yeah, um, I've worked for homes uh, right across North America, done different um, international development projects for uh, different countries and so on, Britain mm-hmm. and uh, the Caribbean, uh, uh, for the U.S. government in Central America, and the most recent assignment was for the Canadian government in, uh, in South America. Yeah. So, you know, what a wide, what a broad, um, uh, you know, Career choice. I mean, there's just so many different things you can do, but all under the same umbrella of uh, furniture design. Yeah, I hear all that, and it's all fantastic. But you know what really sticks out in my mind when you say all that? I'm 40 years old, and you've been woodworking for at least 40 years. <laughs> Don't tell me that. Yeah, yeah. All uh, right. Interns that we have uh, know now that um, they're not to uh, uh, bring jigs down off the wall, uh, look at the jig, everything I dated. Uh, build is dated yeah. every jig uh they'll look at it and go oh you made this six years before i was born, born. <laughs> they only do that once yeah all right well hey michael thanks for taking time this afternoon to speak to us yeah and i'll see you in august good all right all right we're back and thanks to matt for uh and michael for taking the time to do that when matt was up in the toronto area um hanging out with michael fortune to shoot another article i think it might have been on steam bending but, um, oh, it, really? Does, does Michael do any steam bending? These guys all make <laughs> fun of me because I'm sort of semi in love with Michael. The reason is just what you heard in that interview. It's every time I spend time with this guy, it's just I'm amazed at his woodworking genius. And it's that kind of woodworking genius that's both sides of the brain. It's like I'm playing he, Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet right now. It's a little bit of a bromance, but uh, he is really smart on the design side. He went to industrial design school, which I think helped him tremendously. It's an area that a lot of woodworkers don't really feed as much as their technical side. And then he's a mechanical whiz, too. It's like I got up there, and he had just bought 
for pennies on the dollar, this giant veneer guillotine that he had redone all the hydraulics of. And I mean, it's insane. I'd never take a job like that on. He just dives in. He's got the mechanical side. He's got the creative design side. He's an amazing guy. He's a, that's why he's a contributing editor, and that's why you're going to be seeing his articles in the magazine for many years to come. There you go. Well, guys, uh, as you know, we get a lot of comments on our iTunes page, and uh, every week I like to select a few to read on the show. So the first one comes from Ralphie Jackers, and he wrote in to say, A must-listen for hobbyist woodworkers. You learn a lot just by listening in the car-perfect way to pass the time during a commute. Great topics and solutions, and the staff does a good job of explaining what's going on even without video. Yeah, he's referring to early on in the... Early on in our podcast days, we thought it might be fun to show the three of us sitting at a table and have a video feed along with the podcast, but it looked a lot like three guys sitting at a table for an hour, which wasn't great. And Mike was a trooper. He tried to draw pictures on a board, but... Whiteboard. We had some fun. We had some fun. Although that was was back in the days of the older mics, when everything kind of sounded like this. It's true. We have this super fancy, high-tech, low-tech room with a bunch of egg crate. So we don't have as much echo. Well, the wet bar is nice. The wet bar, yes, it's true. Agreed. Uh, hey, uh, Asa, can you mix me up a Sazerac? I don't know what that is. Yeah, neither do I. I just know it's a 1930s style drink. I'm, sh- I'm sure it? somebody will email us the recipe of a Sazerac. Um, <laughs> David wrote in to say, "Hi guys, love the podcast. I've subscribed to a number of podcasts, but Shop Talk Live is the only one I anxiously await every week." And finally, Brad wrote in to say, Hello, Ed, Asa, Matt, Mike, and everyone else on the Fine Woodworking team. I love the show. Not one episode goes by where you don't mention a craftsman's name or technique or tool that goes into the brain for future reference or has me doing a Google search to find out more. Always entertaining and informative. You know, it's, those comments mean a lot to us. I just want to say that. Um, it, you know, we realize that what we had hoped for is sort of happening, that this is going out. We're able to share our enthusiasm and share some information hopefully and uh and it's it's gratifying to hear that that it means a lot thanks a lot well that about wraps it up this week for shop talk live we'll be back again in two weeks on july 12th for our next episode in the meantime show us a little love by leaving a comment on itunes and by all means click that five star rating or four if you want don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at tauntoncom T-A-U-N-T-O-N dot com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes or stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com. Cheers, everybody. Oh, did we laugh. <laughs>